Stand clear of the closing doors, please. In a Brooklyn fractured into speculative storyscapes, you never know what could be lurking around the corner. Fantasy, horror, sci-fi, or the just plain weird. Join Professor Brad Overstreet, Senior Junior Lecturer Sam Spellingbaum, Professor Emeritus Calliope DeGamowitz, and Inquisitor James Earl King II as they discover the stories drifting in and out of your reality. I'm a genius. You're the genius? Tell me, overproof. Do you even know where we are right now? Uh, the land of the living. Obviously, you're welcome. I'm thinking London or Monte Carlo or... Ah, Monsieur King. A pleasure to see you again and welcome your party to Les Ectoplasmes, Manhattan's premier restaurant catering to the dearly departed. Hey, Norbert. How's the family? Oh, still dead, sir. Thank you for asking. Shall I inform the steward you are here on business, or will you be dining with us? A uh, pitcher of strawberry daiquiris, stat, and uh, uh, a side of cockroaches to fresh. Oui, monsieur. James, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> uh, you two eggheads aren't my only clients. The dead chow down on stories like nobody's business. And stories are the board d'affaire here at L'Ectoplasme. How is, how is that even? Ah, the wine list. May I recommend the Dom Perignon 2099? So, we're in the future, I assume? <laughs> no, madame. This particular vintage has been reverse-aged in tachyon-infused casks by Benedictine monks in Epernay sent back from the turn of next century. Wait, wait, wait. That means we win, right? The Omniverse can't wipe us out anytime soon if there's a vineyard on the bank of the Marne 80 years from now. Regrettably, monsieur, les ectoplasmes can offer no such assurances. Suppliers from future timelines appear and disappear with astonishing regularity. It's a matter of... Qu'est-ce que c'est? Always in the motion is the future. Right. So, wait. Our reverse seance... It's more like an open-table reservation from beyond the grave. A resilience, if you will. I won't. Oh, you think it's easy getting a table here. The wait for a reservation is reality-bending. Lucky for you two. I dropped my name. Compliments of the chef, Monsieur King. Is that a Chris Dykeman served on a Wodehouse and Lovecraft gastrique? Only the finest at Les Ectoplasmes. Enjoy. A singular event in several courses. Chris Dykeman. Originally published in EOM 
Equal Opportunity Madness, published by Otto Libris in 2017. The stated purpose of the anthology was to create stories that would make Lovecraft roll over in his grave. It was late fall when I finally roused myself to look in on young Rivera. She had declined my invitations to dine all that autumn, and I was hesitant to press myself upon her, lest an importune knock at her door send her diffident mathematical muse flying out the window, depriving the world of some great theorem thingamy. Genius is a fragile thing, and young Rivera is a genius for all her woes. But I had promised her sister I would look after the puppy, and a promise to a friend like Inez Rivera is worth an entire barrelful of insulted muses, and a library full of lost theorems in the bargain. Thus I resolved to corner the girl in her lair. I went round to her flat, and there there was no concierge, a rough-hewn lass lounging on the front steps, was good enough to help me locate the button labelled with her name. After a staccato conversation in which Inez's name featured prominently, I was buzzed in. I hide myself up the dark and winding stairs with only minor tremors in my calves and the merest clutching of the lungs. The flat was a strange affair, books and manuscripts crowding the chairs and teetering on the desk. From floor to ceiling, every bit of wall was papered with sheets torn from notebooks, old envelopes, receipts, and odd scraps, all covered with the same symbols, drawn over and over in a bewildering array of combinations. In some places, the walls themselves had been defaced. The resulting mosaic effect, while not entirely unpleasant, made me rather dizzy. As I took in the room, young Rivera regarded me through bleary, distrustful eyes. I reintroduced myself and reminded her of her elder sister's wish that the two of us enjoy each other's company. Oh, yes, she said, making a half-hearted attempt to clear space for me among the piles. Inez did say you might look in on me while she was away. She thinks this business of me being sent down from university is a sign of my ongoing mental breakdown. "'Silly of her to worry. I'm fine. "'My dear woman, it is plain to me that you are anything but fine. "'I plucked an errant scrap of paper from my cuff. "'Your skin is pale as pasteurized milk. "'Your eyes have the most profound circles under them. "'Your hair is unkempt beyond even the current fashion. "'I insist you join me for dinner at my club. "'Come now, this moment. "'The atmosphere in this place reeks with knowledge. "'It is unhealthy.' I will spare you the details of the argument that followed. The woman would not see reason, and I, on my part, refused to back away from what I now realized was a friend, or the sister of a friend which amounts to the same thing, in need. Happily, the somewhat free movement of my arms set to tottering several large piles of papers perched at the edge of the desk. Rivera became agitated in the extreme, fussing over her books and papers. I seized the initiative and began stalking about the place, gesticulating wildly, refusing to leave unless she came with me. In a moment, young Rivera had thrust her arms into a baggy tweed jacket and hurried me out of her lair of numbers. We arrived at my club in good time for the late seating, and Charlotte set us in the front drawing room whilst our table was laid. We settled into wing chairs near the fire, and Charlotte brought us an aperitif of Krug Grand Cuvée, the flutes chilled to perfection, 
and a plate of amuse-bouche, black mission figs and mascarpone, forest mushrooms with blue cheese, hard-boiled quail's eggs topped with caviar. Good woman, Charlotte. Barely raised an eyebrow at Rivera's jacket. Now, my girl, I said as Charlotte glided away, tell me this marvellous idea you're working away on. It's an equation, a kind of formula, she said, and bit into a fig. Good, aren't they? Just the thing to stir up your appetite. An equation, you say? Seems a lot of fuss you're making over a bit of maths. Come on, fess up, and don't worry. No one at my club would ever dream of doing anything so vulgar as pinching another woman's idea. We glanced about. To our left, old Stubbins was leaning forward in her chair, the better to let Charlotte add more whiskey to her soda. On her other side, Sprinkly Dalrymple was draped across a couch, her rhythmic snores a lovely counterpoint to the steady crackle of the fire. Rivera relaxed a bit and took a sip from her glass. It's good of you to ask, really. Not many people find my ideas very interesting. Since I was sent down, I've been working all on my own. It's about singularities, mathematical singularities, and their relationship to the physical world. Now there's a good woman, take your time, don't rush, I said, and took a large swallow of champagne. Gulping Cru Grand Cuvée is an insult to that good wine, but I trusted that in my moment of need the goddess of the grape would forgive me. The child clearly needed someone to talk to, and I was determined to do right by Inez. If mathematics was the topic, then we would, by Juno, talk mathematics. You know, I'm sure, she continued, that a mathematical singularity is the point where a function's value fails to be analytic. Quite, I said, refilling my glass. Simply put, she said, a singularity is the point where your function goes to infinity and becomes unplottable, where it blows up. Ah, yes, I said, feeling on firmer ground. I had myself blown up a chemistry lab my first year at university. I'd never heard of any of the mathematics gals having that kind of trouble, but going to infinity sounds a deal better than smashed to pieces and burnt, I must allow. A mathematical singularity is an unplottable point. It's something we can't really see, we can't measure, but we know it exists. Just so, I said. Fortunately, at that moment, Charlotte appeared at my elbow. Our table was ready. There was a pause in the conversation as we were seated in one of the darker, more discreet corners of the dining room. Charlotte was clearly doing her best to protect my reputation. Young Rivera very sensibly left the ordering to me, and soon we were enjoying the first sips of a delightful Chardonnay, audacious yet amusing, and a green salad covered in generous flakes of aged pecorino and the merest drizzle of an aged balsamic. "'Go on,' I said. Tell me more about these mathematical singular rummies. Rivera poked at her salad. Two summers ago, she said, Inez took me on a trip to Germany, to a remote village up in the mountains, to inspect some of our family holdings. Inez was busy attending to business, and I was left on my own for several weeks. I struck up an acquaintance with the local librarian. She was well versed in the native folklore of the ancient primitive tribes of the region, She said that in the time before the missionaries had arrived, the mountain tribes worshipped ancient spirits. 
The old ones, they called them. The outsiders. The natives used a sort of picture prayer, along with a propitiating sacrifice, to summon these gods from a place they believed was not in or off this world. First mathematics, now religion. Could politics be far behind? I took another sip of wine. We paused for a moment as Charlotte arrived tableside with our trout and began to debone. It really was a pleasure to watch her work. The lemon sauce threw a veil of steam around young Rivera's face, adding a touch of atmosphere. Charlotte departed. I tasted the white asparagus. Old ones, I said. Picture prayers? What has this to do with your singular mathematics? I'm sorry, old thing. You'll have to water it down a bit for me. She sighed, jabbing at a new potato. This librarian showed me some drawings of diagrams she collected from various ancient sites up in the mountains. It was my earlier studies that helped me to see. I had briefly considered archaeology, you know. I'd spent my first term studying ancient languages. The moment I saw these pictures, it was clear. They weren't drawings at all. They were mathematical equations rendered in simple pictographs. A mathematical riddle put forward by the gods. If the tribe's people solved the riddle, the old ones would appear and answer their prayers. These riddles were singularity equations done using symbols instead of numbers. The tribes, with the help of the old ones, had discovered how to plot the unplottable point. I lifted a discreet finger. Charlotte, silent as a panther, uncorked another bottle of Chardonnay. But over time, the invocation became diluted, like that party game where you repeat a phrase from person to person until you reach the last person in line and it's become something else entirely. Vital elements of the equation were lost. The charm could no longer open the gateway to the gods. The old ones were still out there, but they were locked away from the people. Eventually, the tribes turned away from worshipping them and embraced the new gods the missionaries brought. I took a bite of fish. Heavenly stuff. When I returned to school, I took up historical mathematics with a vengeance, Rivera said. I studied night and day, consulted every text I could lay my hands on. At first, my professors were pleased, helped me in my research. But then I made the mistake of telling my tutor why I wanted their help. My tutor went to the dean, and I was immediately sent down. What was it the old girls objected to? I told them, I believe if I can solve these pictorial equations, if I can arrange the islanders' singularity pictograms in the right combination, I can plot their unplottable point. What happens then? It will unlock the door to another dimension, the space between spaces, the place where the old ones live. I freely admit it was all a bit more than I could take in. Charlotte appeared with a cheese platter, and I selected a particularly odoriferous Stilton, in hopes the fumes might clear my head. Rivera took a bit of paper from her pocket and threw it on the table. It was covered with the same writings I had seen earlier at her flat, little pictures and strange symbols in neat columns and rows. This is it, she said the curse of my life. 
Rivera's folly, they called it at school. Inez is talking of some kind of rest cure, a hospital in Israel. If I could just find the answer, I'd show everyone. She glanced up at me, her face full of misery. Really, it was heart-wrenching. I reached for a macaroon to study my nerves. I then raised my left eyebrow, indicating to Charlotte it was time for the big guns to be brought out. A hush fell over the already subdued room as Charlotte wheeled the venerable bottle in. Defusini très vieille, the finest brandy on God's earth. Rivera and I paused for a moment of respectful silence as Charlotte poured it out, then raised our snifters to sip that amber nectar. As she left us, Charlotte discreetly placed a plate of bonbons between us, along with a bill for me to sign. Rivera put down her glass, composing herself. I'm not insane, you know, she said. If I could just solve this last line, I could reach the old ones, open the portal. Now, my dear woman, let's have no more of this, of gods and mathematics. I took out my fountain pen and signed the bill. What you want is a change of air and a bit of exercise. I have just the thing. I am invited to a shooting party at Lady Nora's next weekend. You shall come with me. A bit of blood and gunpowder will do you a world of good. Rivera was staring at the paper, her eyes wide. Of course, she cried. It's so clear. How did I not see it before? I dare say it's the brandy, I observed. She took up my pen and began drawing a dash here, a dot there, a frantic crossing out thither. She worked feverishly for several minutes, then threw the pen down and jumped up from the table. Eureka! she shouted. And that is when things got rather nasty. The characters on the paper glowed a bright and horrible shade of green. There was a sound, as if from far away, of a great rushing wind. The old club shook to its very foundation. Trophies and cups fell away from the wall with a tremendous clatter. From the billiards room there came a crash as the great water buffalo head, the one old stinker Brooks bagged in Nepal during her last tour, crashed to the floor. An enormous zigzag crack opened up in the wall just behind our table, stretching from floor to ceiling. The rushing wind picked up speed, and a terrific wind swept through the room, blowing napkins, chicken bones, and the remains of what looked to have been a really fine rack of lamb into a tumultuous whirlwind. It was, in a word, chaos. Young Rivera leaped to her feet. "'The doorway is opened!' she cried. "'The old ones are coming through!' Before I could reply that the old ones could bugger right back off again if not in company of a club member, a large green tentacle reached through the crack in the wall. The filthy thing seized young Rivera about the waist, dragging her back towards the fissure. I was on the cusp of jumping to her aid when another tentacle barged in. Snaking its foul way along the table, it upset the vinegar cruet before taking hold of the defusini très vieille. I had only a moment to decide, and I am proud to say I did not hesitate. Rivera is, after all, young and able-bodied, the brandy old and defenceless.
I plunged the cheese knife deep into the thieving appendage. A thick black ichor poured from the gash, accompanied by a truly appalling odor. I wrapped my hands around the brandy, and the tentacle pulled us both towards the crack in the wall. I could hear young Rivera shouting behind me. The abyss approached. Within its depths, I could just make out a gaping maw, a nest of thrashing tentacles, and a great, many-lobed, burning eye. It was all a bit grim, I don't mind telling you. There was a flash of red to my left. The nimble Charlotte snatched up the salt cellar and emptied it into the wound. An ear-splitting bellow sounded from deep within the fissure. The tentacle released its grip on the bottle and withdrew. As I tumbled to the ground, brandy clutched to my bosom, I made a mental note to contact my solicitor about a small remembrance for Charlotte in my will. The equation, Rivera screamed, struggling in the grip of an encircling appendage. The scrap of paper whirled past. She reached for it, but an eddy of wind snatched it away, blowing it into the fireplace. The paper ignited in a brilliant flash of eldritch green and was reduced to a puff of fine ash. As quickly as it had opened, the fissure closed. The piece of tentacle encircling Rivera was cut off from its source as if by a guillotine, dissolving into a pool of black goo. The wind stopped, and we found ourselves sitting on the carpet in a wreckage of spilled vinegar and broken chairs. And that, ladies, is how I came to be involved in what has regrettably become known as the Rivera Incident. I have, of course, paid for the replastering and papering of the wall, the vanished cheese knife, and the injuries to Stinker's buffalo head. I hardly think it fair of you to revoke my club membership, and I ask you as ladies to reconsider your decision. Nothing like this has ever happened before— and it's hardly likely to happen again with young Rivera locked away in that asylum. Inez says it'll be years before she's out. As a matter of fact, I went to visit the girl this afternoon. No point in holding a grudge. Yes, it is rather sad. They won't allow her any writing material, did you know? Seems a bit harsh to me. It warmed my heart to see how happy she was when I left her my fountain pen and a few scraps of paper. After all, behind the bars of that dreadful place, what harm can she possibly do? I say, does anyone else hear thunder? The End Chris Dykeman lives and works in New York City. Her stories have appeared in Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Strange Horizons, Analog, and Mad Hatters and March Hares, among other places. She is currently at work on a novel about carnivorous plants. You can read more of her work at her website, www.christeichman.com. Narrated by Mary Bowie. A career performer and storyteller, Mary Bowie has acted in plays, musicals, television, and film and was the lead singer-keyboardist for an all-women's rock band for a number of years. She is also a published novelist and screenwriter, with a focus on near-future science fiction, contemporary romance, and fantasy. 
This episode was made possible by our Patreon subscribers. A special thank you to John Dewey. We hope you enjoy listening to the Kaleidocast as much as we enjoy making it for you. If you are, will you consider joining our Patreon? It's a way for you to financially support this podcast with whatever you feel comfortable giving. Right now, the Kaleidocast pays semi-pro rates for original fiction, but we have big dreams. We want to pay more for the authors, narrators, engineers, and artists who make this podcast possible. Won't you join us? Visit patreon.com slash kaleidocastnyc. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash k-a-l-e-i-d-o-c-a-s-t-n-y-c. From all your producers, Bradley, Cam, S-O-A, Joe, Marcus, Marcy, Sam, and Sandra, thank you for supporting the Kaleidocast. A deconstructed, magical realist tiramisu soaked in naturalist liqueur could be that piquant. Uh, waiter, waiter, another Gregory Samsa on the rocks. This time hold the brine. Certainly, sir. So, next steps. I have several brilliant you ideas. You are not allowed to plan things unilaterally. Here, here. Anymore. Here, here. We work as a team from here on out. Your check, madam, gentlemen. Please pay the psychopomp at your leisure. Uh, <laughs> you guys gonna get that? Okay, okay, everyone, remember what you ordered. <gasps> I could buy a car for that price. Well, yeah, it's hot cuisine. Just put it on your expense account. Do you have any idea what our budget is? No one gets grants anymore. The real grants are the friends we made along the way named Grant. Uh, <coughs> okay. Uh, look, this is no big deal. They know me here. Excuse me, sir. Uh, call, uh, call back Norbert. <clears throat> are you ready to sign your terms and services, sir? Wait a second. You're not Norbert. You're... <gasps> Homo homini lupus by Sam Schreiber. It's one of Spellingbound stories. The Omniverse has found us. It's almost as if it knows where we are. One of us, at least. Uh, stop, stop looking at me. Calls regarding the Omniverse's terms of service will be answered in the dark order to which they've been eternally consigned. Your business is important to us. To us. Hey! Let me go! Help! Help! Okay, come on, Overfed. Help! We gotta get out of here. To working as a team, I, I. There's help. no I in team. Let's go. Help! Help! Oh God! This is such a tired trope. Homo homini lupus, by Sam Schreiber, read by Paul Carley.
Seoul futures are hot this week. The entire intangibles exchange has been taking up pounding lately, but the price of unclaimed souls climbed nearly 20 points yesterday and shows no sign of stopping. Too high by half, Johnny, says Sedgwick in his northern brogue. You wouldn't suppose it's just a bubble, would you? I ask. But I already know from Sedgwick's voice that the Adirondacks are off. Bonnie and I had been planning the trip for months now. It isn't often we get to share a full moon, let alone in the mountains. But you know what they say about plans and making the gods laugh. Oh, it's a bubble all right, Sedgwick says, setting down his copy of Occultus Daily and lighting a Rothman. And someone's planning on popping it. Smoking is strictly forbidden in the Bureau of Metro Paranormal Affairs, but the nameplate on Sedgwick's door doesn't read Deputy Inspector for nothing. Still, the burning English tobacco reeks. It gives me a headache, truth be told. You're a real shit stain springing this on me when I'm half out the door, Sedgwick, I sigh. Where do I even start? Houston Street? The Wilson Twins? Sedgwick takes no offense. Back home, the two of us would have been mortal foes, like as not. Not so much because he's fully human and knows his way around a spell or two, but because neither one of us is especially ashamed of which side of the partition we hail from. But, being the only two born and bred Irishmen in the department, I suppose it was natural we put aside our differences. I'd steer clear of the Wilsons if I were in your shoes. I have a hunch whoever's behind this has their ear to the ground, and the two of them aren't precisely known for their discretion. As well Sedgwick could attest, I suspected. So, where then? I'm having a premonition that a shave will be in order, Sedgwick tells me after finishing a long drag of his Rothman. A haircut, too. Unless I miss my guess. Christ, Sedgwick. The concilium anime? Really? Sedgwick gives me an appraising glance. The brothers won't even let you pass the front door otherwise. Shaggy fuck that you are. Bonnie looks as though she'll skin me alive when I tell her we're putting off the trip. Soul futures, I tell my wife. They rose 20 points at close of business yesterday. And that has what to do with the Adirondacks? The liver and onions she's cooking over our gas stove sizzle menacingly. With futures that high, Sedgwick thinks someone stands to make a killing if they can spook the market just before... I trail off as Bonnie stares me down. She understands perfectly well how short-selling works. Better than I do, in fact. And there's no love lost between her and Sedgwick. Christmas, Johnny, she tells me, her eyes flashing sapphire fury. I'm working Christmas, just so the two of us could have three days together in the mountains. And now you're telling me it's not happening? Because of that half-dirty bastard? I cringe. Sedgwick's dysfunctional finances are a poorly kept secret among the Bureau. Suffice to say, the Wilson twins' indiscretion on the topic of his investments were only one in a parade amongst his worries. There's no way you can mulligan that? Christmas, I mean? I duck as Bonnie hurls the cast-iron skillet at my head, liver and all. Get out, she barks. I give Bonnie an apologetic shrug before turning tail. American wolves. My mother warned me. Never marry one. Of course, she also told me to steer clear of Belfasters like Sedgwick, so I'm not quite sure whose side she'd come down on here. The expense account covers the haircut for Romas. My hair and beard will return to their naturally uncouth length within a week, but for the moment I appear as dapper and well-coiffed as any Wall Street well-to-do. For good measure, I throw in a suit from Alton Lane. Sedgwick will whine over that, but it isn't my fault I had to rip my last suit to shreds. 
Undressing in an orderly fashion isn't always an option in my line of work. I ignore Cedric's advice and make my way to the Wilson Twins once I'm through at Alton Lane's. It won't take much to spook the souls market. Two or three dozen souls dumped at fire sale prices should get the job done. The question, apart from where the souls would come from, and how voluntary the shucking off of their mortal coils will be, is who's been betting against the market. If anyone would know, it would be the trolls of Greenwich Street. There isn't much that goes on in monetized intangibles that they don't have their fingers on the pulse of. The risk, I decide, is worth the information. New look for you, isn't it, Johnny? Raphael Wilson says after the enchanted door chime announces my presence in the dilapidated Hell's Kitchen shop front. Despite his sickly complexion, Raphael seems to be in good spirits. Don't tell me you've been playing the market without bringing the business to us. I'm a hardened soul, but my brother, I don't know if he could take that sort of an insult. Laugh it up, Raphael. I'm here on business. That's what we like to hear, Raphael says, his eyes lighting up at the thought of my promiscuous MPA pension options. Always happy to accommodate new clientele, especially those who come recommended. MPA business, I emphasize. Where's the love, Johnny? Theo Wilson says, entering from the back of the shop. We never hear from you unless you want something. Unlike his brother, Theo's skin is a shade too green to successfully pass for human and daylight hours, so he tends to limit his involvement in their business to bookkeeping and enforcement, when such things are called for. Let's just say I'll owe you a favor and leave it at that, why don't we? Theo shrugs his massive shoulders and takes a seat across from Raphael. It just so happens I've got a favor in mind. So, what can we do you for? I need to know who's been short-selling souls, I say. And I need to know yesterday. The temperature in the room seems to drop a degree or two, as the Wilsons consider the question. It's funny that you should bring the topic up, Raphael tells me. Theo and I have been wondering that very thing ourselves. Thought you might be able to shed some light on the subject. Me? The Bureau, Raphael says. There's been a lot of movement in the last few weeks. A lot of collateralizing. A lot of securitization. A lot of tracks being covered. No one showing their hand. There's only one common thread. And I bet you can already guess what that is. Can't you, Johnny? Soul futures, I say. Deflated. Haven't seen anything like it since the 80s, Theo says, shaking his head. Not that we're complaining. Plenty of dupes and amateurs out there looking for a piece of the action. We just love to have some idea when the music stops. A lot of money to be made with that kind of information. You don't say. I pause for a moment before continuing. What do you hear of the concilium anime? Theo smiles, revealing his mandibular tusks. Well now, that's cutting right to the heart of the matter, isn't it? The Lafayette chapter of the Concilium Anime holds court at Brinkley's these days, or so Raphael and Theo tell me. I suppose they mean to blend in with the rest of the freeloaders and hucksters. Not that it's a hard sell. To a man, their alkalites hold down jobs as day traders, analysts, and brokers. It's how this whole business started, after all. Dr. Faustus may have mulled over what an eternal soul was worth to God or the devil, but leave it to Magnetar and Bridgewater to ask what its derivatives would fetch on the open market. The air is thick with cologne and bluster when I step through the door. 
It had been at a place like this that I'd met Sedgwick for the first time, five years back. I'd been between private security contracts for a handful of syndicates and conglomerates that all blend together in my mind now. I'd never been able to hold down a position with any reputable firm for long enough on account of my peculiar condition. While my kind is not unheard of in the city, neither are we especially welcome. You must be Johnny Sullivan, Sedgwick had said by way of introduction. I remember regarding him suspiciously as he signaled the bartender for another round on my behalf. Even then, he looked older than his forty-some-odd years. Ground down, gray-faced, but with a quiet sort of authority. Do I know you? I know you, he said. Which raises the question of, how good at your job can you possibly be? The first of many ribs. I'd learned to put up with it, and, in time, give a little back. I even forgave him his northernness, though Euroleague games have a way of dredging up old animosities. He'd offered me a job at the MPA right then and there. I told him I was planning on leaving the city, that I'd already booked a flight back to Dublin. Of course you have, he replied. Why do you suppose we're having this conversation? A few months later, I'd met Bonnie, and that was that. For the first time in as long as I could remember, I felt as though there was a place I belonged, and I had Sedgwick to thank for it. She's not exactly wrong about him, though. Bonnie, I mean. Sedgwick has been waiting knee-deep in shit too long not to be just a little dirty. But maybe that just comes with the territory. His intuitions, as he likes to call them, are rarely misguided, and that has to count for something. Tomato juice, I tell the bartender at Brinkley's, who gives me a queer look. It's not that I don't enjoy a drink, but alcohol has a way of confusing my nose, and I have a feeling that I'm going to need it today. Whatever the Concilium is planning, if they're planning anything at all, will happen fast. Maybe even tonight. I have Sedgwick and his MPA tactical squad on speed dial, in case things get out of hand. A clusterfuck is what it is, a man says from across the bar. The scents wafting through the air at Brinkley's are legion, but the man smells distinctly of sulfur and scorched chicken fat. I prick up my ears. The Concilium anime fancy themselves a disciplined lot, but they still haven't learned to scrub away the scent of their ghoulish business, at least not well enough to stop a nose such as mine from picking it up. You've got it all wrong, his companion says, giving him a hearty clap on the shoulder. It's an opportunity. We're breaking off a piece of something huge, brother. A goddamn clusterfuck, sulfur and chicken fat says sullenly. I frown. Descent among the ranks of the Concilium anime isn't surprising in and of itself. But sharing in the spoils... That is something new. They must be planning something truly diabolical if they're taking on partners. No one else in the bar notices when about a third of the patrons drain the last drops of their whiskey and make their way to the back. Two by two, they slip past the restrooms, through the defunct kitchen, and down the stone stairs leading to the basement Brinkley's isn't supposed to have. I keep my distance and wait for the latecomers, new initiates for the most part. With any luck, they won't think twice about a face they haven't seen before. I surreptitiously text Sedgwick before descending into the temple, and tell him to wait until my signal. There's a chance this is just an assembly of the Concilium like any other, and I would just as soon not blow our cover if it can be helped. Brother Marcus, and Brother Marcus. The Magister greets the men ahead of me and hoods them in sheets of fine black cloth. I am a child of divorce, the two of them say in unison. I roll my eyes while my face is still hidden in the shadows. 
The prose of Brett Easton Ellis serves as a sort of shibboleth and scripture for the concilium. Cedric makes all the rookies in the MPA commit his canon to memory. Candlelight flickers in the gloom as I step forward. The magister allows the man alongside me to pass, but holds up a forbidding hand when I approach and gives me a cool once-over. I mentally prepare for the shift. Elton Lane? The magister finally asks, disgustedly taking the lapel of my suit jacket between his fingers. Maybe, I say, doing my best to conceal my Dublin inflection. Maybe nothing. Make an effort next time. This is the Temple of Bateman, not a fucking after-hours club. He pats my shoulders a little harder than necessary as he slips the hood over my head. I shrug as the heavy metal door behind me swings shut, sealing me inside with the acolytes. I'm a child of divorce. The ceiling beneath Brinkley's is high and domed, a stone vault by the look of it. A grand staircase leads down to the subterranean trading floor, where brokers from varying occult brotherhoods shout at each other and wave yellowed grimoires in the air like they were winning lottery tickets. The four o'clock gong thrums menacingly, and as one, their shoulders drop. A few of them shout out curses, a few of which are the genuine article, and ignite the air with crackling energy, while others clap each other heartily on the backs. The last of the concilium's alkalites make their way up the staircase to join their brethren. The smell of chicken fat and sulfur is much stronger than it was on the alkalite at the bar, even through the dank air. There are other unpleasant aromas as well. One odor in particular makes me a little lightheaded. I can't place it exactly, but I feel as though I ought to. By the time I arrive on the polished marble floor, the high priest is already addressing the congregation. There are no more barriers to cross, he says, letting the words echo for effect. All we have in common with the uncontrollable and the insane, the vicious and the evil, all the mayhem we may cause and our utter indifference toward it, we now surpass. Murmured Elysian amens follow, sealing the convocation. If I'm lucky, the high priest will move on to new business. That will be that. But instead, he nods, his chin sinking into his meaty neck, and turns to one of the alkalites. Brother Marcus, if you would... The alkalite nods, walks across the proscenium, and unlatches a planked wooden door, taller than the one at the top of the stairs. It creaks open, groaning as a handful of alkalites wielding halberds prod a group of men and women, maybe twenty in all, into the temple. Their hands are bound behind their backs with cord, and it smells as though none of them have bathed in days. From the look of them, they must be wearing the same clothes they had on when the concilium took them. They are not coming quietly. I reach into my pocket and text Sedgwick again, a trick I'd mastered in my rookie year. It's happening, I thumb blindly, right now. Yes, yes, very good. Welcome, lambs, the high priest says, not unkindly. A few of the smarter ones begin to panic, but are jabbed at warningly by the alkalites behind them. You must be wondering now what role it is we've asked you here to play. Nobody asked me shit, a man with sandy-colored dreadlocks and wide eyes sputters. The black t-shirt and fatigues he's wearing looks as if they haven't been washed since days before the concilium took him captive. You must be wondering why this is the path the gods have put before you, the high priest continues implacably. This is some fascist fuckery, the man interrupts again. The high priest nods and one of the acolytes cracks him in the stomach with the butt of his halberd. The man sinks to his knees, a strand of spittle escaping his lips. I look to the stairway, expecting to see light spread across the steps as Sedgwick and the MPA storm in. But there is only darkness. Who among you believes in an immortal soul? The high priest calls out, 
strutting amiably in front of the sorry lot while the alkalites leer on. Who believes in the multitudes of the heavens rushing all around us, filling our earthly coffers? He asks in earnest, as if nothing could bring him more joy than making these people understand what he is about to do to them, which is extract their souls, an incomprehensibly painful procedure, from what I understand, trap said souls in an ectenic receptacle, and arrange for them to be sold at bargain prices through a handful of complicit intermediaries, assuming they're the ones who've been planning the massive short sales Sedgwick's predicted. The concilium will make a killing once the market plummets. They'll burn these people's soulless husks first, of course. That goes without saying. They'd never leave behind evidence for the abstract and intangible security commission to find. You can't do this, one woman cries softly. Please, just let us go. The high priest stops in front of her and places his hand on her cheek. She doesn't even have the strength to flinch. You're an ugly bitch, he recites the line as if it were a psalm. I want to stab you to death and then play with your blood. The woman's face crumples as the high priest turns away. Behold, he says with a flourish, your redemption and doom. A pair of acolytes march through the same door the prisoners have been led through, carrying an obsidian sarcophagus on a wooden litter. Six wicked metal spikes protrude at various points from its shiny black surface. The receptacle. No doubt about it. I've seen enough, and I'm out of time. I can only hope Sedgwick is on his way. Excuse me, Padre, I say, stepping forward. But I think we're done here. The whispers of protest spread across the proscenium like waves. Brother Marcus! The magister bellows the honorific, and I shoot him a look over my shoulder as I defrock myself. I wasn't speaking to you. One of the halberd-wielding alkalites takes three quick steps in my direction. He's fast, but my hand closes around the shaft of his weapon easily enough. His eyes fill with surprise, then fear, as I turn my gaze on him and send him skidding on his back across the hard marble floor with half a shove. I face the high priest again. Now, the way I see it, you have two choices. You can turn these people loose and pray to God, to Mnuchin, or whoever, that they don't go to the police. Or you can all be charged with multiple counts of violating the Abstract and Intangible Securities Act, and be taken into custody by the Bureau of Metro Paranormal Affairs. The acolytes all take a step back when I intone the name of the MPA. Even the Magister lets out a low hiss. We've put away hundreds of their brothers over the decades. But a smirk twitches at the corner of the high priest's mouth. Blasphemy in the Temple of Bateman is a capital offense. His mouth turns into a full sneer. Brother Wolf? He's made me for what I am. It doesn't matter. MPA agents will come thundering down the steps once they hear the racket I'll make, should push come to shove. Let me try to speak your language, I say. Where you're headed, there are no steak dinners. No Glen Levitt in boulevards. And let me emphasize this point. No lawyers. There's enough evidence here to make you all disappear forever. No one will even ask why. I see, the high priest says. For a moment, he looks genuinely crestfallen. Too late. I realize he's toying with me. Is it true what Brother Wolf says? He turns back to the doorway from where the sacrificial lambs entered the proscenium. Oh, I'm afraid so. The nasally northern voice drifts from the darkness beyond the door. All of it. It's all been one massive triple cross all along. Don't you see? His shadow crosses the threshold before I see his face. It's as if the floor has dropped out from under my feet. Rothmans. 
That was the smell I couldn't put my finger on. No, I'm sorry, Sedgwick chuckles humorously when he sees my face. I shouldn't make light of your circumstances, Johnny. You look terribly confused, as it is. What are you doing here, Sedgwick, I say, feeling as though the wind has been kicked from my lungs. You don't really have to ask, do you? Sedgwick says sympathetically. I never took you for a simpleton. But you can't be. Can't I, though? Sedgwick finishes for me. Who do you suppose has been whispering that souls have nowhere to go but up to anyone that'll listen? And they do listen when you've got a job like mine, Johnny. I blink, struggling to understand. Sedgwick cuts corners, pockets contraband, maybe even lets slip a word or two that he oughtn't from time to time. But this is beyond anything I could have imagined. It really never occurred to you, Sedgwick says a little sadly. Maybe a simpleton after all. I growl as the change starts to work its way up into my chest. My suit jacket is already straining against my shoulders and back. I wouldn't, Sedgwick warns me, stepping in front of the high priest. Eight of the acolytes fix their halberds in a phalanx and slowly close in around me. Out in the open, at my full strength, I'd pick them off one by one, even with their silver-tipped pikes. But I'm vulnerable during the transformation. There's no chance at least one of them wouldn't skewer me in close quarters. I bear my elongating teeth at them anyhow. What is it you want, you traitor? I snarl, half-changed. Why did you send me here? Sedgwick sighs, letting his shoulders sag a little before speaking. The thing of it is, Johnny, I'm tired. And I'll be the first to admit... I've made a mess of things as far as my retirement goes. But this, this makes up for everything. The hairs stand up on the back of my neck, growing out long and gray. Of course there'd be questions when I left for some little island in the middle of the sea, Sedgwick continues. Too many questions. It has to be you, Johnny. You betrayed the MPA to the Concilium Anime. Betrayed me. Let these people die he says, gesturing back at the row of sacrificial lambs. A few of them let out low wails. I'm not letting this happen, I warned Sedgwick. I'll rip your throat out with my last breath if I have to. I'll tell you what I'll do for you, Johnny, Sedgwick says as the acolytes point their halberds at my chest and throat. I'll give you one hour head start. Once we're finished here, of course. I suggest you use it to pack up your things and take Bonnie far away from here. She has more to lose from this than you do. If you don't... He shrugs and assumes an official tone, one I'd heard him employ countless times before. I won't be able to protect you from the consequences once they find out what you've done. A beautiful notion, Brother Sedgwick, the high priest says. But I'm afraid that's all completely out of the question. Sedgwick whirls around to face him. We struck a bargain, he says. Johnny takes the fall and leaves here whole. It's the only way this works. For what you had in mind. Yes, the high priest says, nodding to the magister, who approaches proscenium, sliding a bejeweled knife from the scabbard beneath his robe. But surely you can appreciate the concilium's position. It would be insanity to allow either of you to leave our temple alive. You're making a mistake, Sedgwick protests as the acolytes take him by either arm. You haven't thought this through. I'll... The sound of screeching metal and splintering wood cuts him off as the door leading down from Brinkley's comes off its hinges and tumbles down the stone stairway, flattening a pair of acolytes. 
Sedgwick bolts down the staircase to the trading floor as Bonnie, and all her flaming auburn glory comes loping down the stairs. I take advantage of the moment, snatching the halberd at my chest and swinging it like a quarterstaff into the face of the acolyte who'd been holding me a moment earlier. He falls limply to the floor, amid the shouts and bustling of his brothers. The magister turns to face Bonnie, but not quickly enough. She bats him aside with a swipe of her paw, sending the knife skittering away. There are times I forget just how truly I love my wife. The change takes me. The halberd in my fist snaps in half, and I fall to all fours, charging free from the acolyte's formation. There's one or two glancing cuts as they attempt to regain their position, but I tear into them, one after the next, while Bonnie plows through the ranks of the concilium anime, rending flesh from bone. The acolytes are nothing. It's Sedgwick I'm after. But I'm too hasty in pursuit my prey. Just as I turn to give chase, I feel a silver spear tip beneath my long chin. The high priest holds the broken quarter of the very halberd I'd taken from his parishioner against my throat and grins savagely. Brother Wolf, a pleasure. He rears back for the killing thrust. It never comes. A flurry of blonde dreadlocks flashes in front of me, knocking the priest aside. Fascist, the bound man who'd given him lip before cries. He stumbles, unable to catch himself, head first into the wall. I backpedal a pace or two as he falls to the floor, flat as a flapjack. When I look back at the high priest, he's staring down at the thorn and axe blades protruding from his side. It doesn't take a wolf to smell a severed inferior vena cava. I, he says amazedly as blood burbles through his fingers, I have always been a child of divorce. I growl my understanding as the high priest's head lolls, then trot down the staircase and onto the trading floor. My nostrils flare as I pick up Cedric's scent. There are dozens of tunnels leading in every direction. I can only hope he's chosen poorly. Sedgwick is rattling the second-to-last doorknob along a corridor when I find him. To his credit, he doesn't dart to the last remaining exit. It was nothing personal, Johnny, he says as I pad toward him, stepping sadly away from the door. It's the MPA. It'll grind you down and turn you around until you can't find North anymore. I know you won't believe this, but I thought of it as doing you a favor of sorts. I cock my large head at him, ears flattened. Giving you the push you needed to get out while the getting was still good. There comes a point when the moment's passed, and you know there's nothing to be done. Sedgwick looks up finally, meeting my bright yellow eyes. No chance I could talk you down. If they take me in, that'll be the story of me. My whiskers twitch. I give my head a slow, deliberate shake. Just as well, I suppose, he says as he approaches me, plunging his hands resignedly into his coat pockets. No way I would have pinned this on you anyhow. Not now. It takes a moment longer than it should have, but I see the pistol he's fishing for. Cedric's no fool. There's silver in the chamber. He's too close to miss, too far to close the distance in time. He's already taken aim. My haunch is tense for the longest, fastest leap of my life when something whizzes past my ear with a sharp whistle. Not a bullet. Sedgwick fires, but it's more reflex than anything. The shot ricochets harmlessly off the concrete walls. The shaft of the halberd seems to sprout straight from his chest, where a scarlet blotch now blooms. The entire spear quivers as Sedgwick collapses to his knees, stupefied. The makeshift javelin scrapes the floor as he falls to his side and breathes his last. You're hopeless, you know that? My wife says from the end of the corridor. I look sheepishly over my shoulder as I begin to slip back into my more diminished form. 
Even in the gloomy light of the corridor, Bonnie's bare skin has a lovely alabaster glow. But then, the change always has left her somewhat flushed. No, she says, giving me a dirty look as she steps past me and strips Sedgwick's tan-colored duster from his limp arms. You do not get to look at me like that. Not when you've ruined my week. I feel a pang of disappointment as her shapely body disappears beneath the ratty coat. How did you know? I ask, following her back into the proscenium. The Wilsons, Bonnie says. They say hello, by the way. I always knew Cedric was dirty, but I never thought it went this deep. Not until they told me you came in asking after the concilium anime. They were missing persons leading suspects in the magical abduction of twenty-three people in the last seventy-two hours. No chance that was a coincidence. The real question? She gives me a jab with her elbow. How did you not know? You've worked with the man for five years. The Concilium's prisoners are all edged up against the wall, away from the dead and dying acolytes of the Concilium anime. When they see the two of us, they edge farther. Bonnie pays them no mind. I try to nod to the one who saved my hide, but his eyes don't seem quite able to focus. You didn't bring your squad, I point out. Bonnie shrugs beneath the coat, several sizes too large for her shoulders. Would have been overkill. I had to be sure before we moved on him. We walk through the hole in the wall where the door used to be upstairs. The NYPD draw their weapons as we enter the bar itself and shout for us to kneel on the ground. But Bonnie doesn't miss a beat. She holds up both hands and tells them to check the pocket of her trench coat, which is hanging on the coat rack above her neatly folded pantsuit. One look at her badge. Inspector General Bonnie Sullivan is all it takes for them to stammer apologies. Bonnie actually manages to make conversation as she slips back into her clothes, and then we're on our way. At least the Adirondacks are back on, I offer. I smell the rain before we even leave the bar. Some semblance of my Alton Lane suit still hangs from my body, but it's little more than rags. Before I can think to ask for it, Bonnie stuffs Sedgwick's coat unceremoniously in the trash. The Adirondacks? No, she tells me crossly. There will be no... Adirondacks. You just got promoted. Acting Deputy Inspector. I... What? It's not permanent, of course, she says. Strictly interim. The search committee should find a suitable replacement. The search committee being, of course, me. I'm not taking any more chances on the old boys club. We're starting fresh if I have to dig through every shred of background myself. She gives me a sharp, irritated look. As I said... Weak. Ruined. The rain comes down hard, flattening my hair against my scalp and drenching the remains of my suit. A few tourists stare at me, but the natives walk by without a second glance. Any chance I can appeal the appointment? On what grounds? She demands, scowling. Nepotism? Bonnie gives me a hard look, but her face breaks out in a grin. You make me laugh, Johnny. Sam Schreiber is a writer living in Brooklyn, where he teaches science fiction and fantasy at New York University's Tandon School of Engineering. He is a member of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers, as well as Science Fiction Writers of America. Check out his work at thesamschreiber.com. Narrated by Paul Carl. Paul Carl is an actor living and working in New York City. This episode was made possible by our Patreon subscribers. 
A special thank you to Liam Burke. Thank you for listening to The Kaleidocast, a production of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers, who can be found at bsfwriters.com. Your hosts are Marcy Arlen as Calliope DeGamowitz, Bradley Robert Parks as Brad Overstreet, Cameron Roberson as James Earl King II, and Sam Schreiber as Sam Spellingbound. Our music is Delusion of the Fury, Act 2, Treats with Life and with Life Despite Life, Arrest, Trial, and Judgment, Joy in the Marketplace, by Harry Parch, used by permission of Innova Recordings and the Harry Parch Foundation. Our audio was engineered by Kyle Fink and Atticus Garten. This podcast uses many sound effects from YouTube, freesound.org, and from FreeSFX at freesfx.co.uk. Special thanks go out to Mike Allen, Zigzag Claiborne, CSE Cooney, Alpha Daily Majors, Wilson Fowley, Tatiana Gomberg, Julia D. Guzman, Carlos Hernandez, Gary Benjamin Holt Jr., Adeodat Ilbudo Roberson, Larissa De Lima, Marco Palmieri, and Diana Foe. The Kaleidocast and all its contents are protected by a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License, which means you can share it all you want, but don't sell it or change it, and give credit to the Kaleidocast and its authors. If you like what you hear, please leave a review on iTunes or comment on our website at kaleidocast.nyc, which is where you can find links to all our contributors. Oh.